Welcome to The Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real, true wealth. To find out more about us and join our syndicate on AngelList, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. Hey guys, today we've got an epic episode of The Syndicate on. Today we've got Jason Cahill. Jason's done everything. He's been in the military, armed forces, special forces, AOL, founder, advisor, VC, and he's coming out of the city of um the city that never sleeps, Brooklyn, New York. Today, we've got Jason. Thanks for coming today, Jason. Cahill, by the way. Well, thanks for having me on, Matt. Happy to be here. My goal is to butcher every introduction as much as possible so that you can do an awesome job <laughs> telling people about yourself. So, Jason, how in God's name did you go from AOL to Special Forces to VC? What, what's the deal? What's your story? Yeah, yeah. Um, great question. So, I'm old. So, AOL hasn't always been the sexiest brand, perhaps. So when I worked for them, they actually were transitioning from pay by the hour to an unlimited all-you-could-eat buffet type style. So I was hired as a land tech, meaning I was the guy who was supposed to connect all of the help desk people's computers. Um, it was a black. I, I, I sort of did it as a gap year between high school and college because I was a bit of a slacker and hadn't exactly figured out what I wanted to do with my life. And I had a blast when I started, but it quickly became not the coolest job where Literally, AOL was so popular with their new dial-in plan that in the city of New York, if you picked up your phone, you wouldn't even get a dial tone because there were that many people trying to dial in. So my, my job that was fun and exciting and not customer focused really quickly evolved to, hey, we need all hands on deck, get on a phone. And it wasn't that fun when people had been you know, on hold waiting to connect with AOL uh, help desk for an hour and a half. And then I'm the person on the other end of the phone. So I gained two things from that job. One was a ton of respect and appreciation for anyone in the sort of customer-facing service industry because it's never, 99% of the time, it's not that person's fault for what your condition is. Their job really, if they're good at it, is to help you. And even if they're not, it's, it's, it's still not their fault. So yeah, I, I sort of... I literally went down to the army recruiter's office to talk my roommate out of joining the military. And if I could find that guy's name, I still remember it was Daener Parsram. So if you're out there listening, man, I'd hire you in a minute because he convinced a, a cynical, not pro-military guy to not only join, but to sign up for six years um, because this standard enlistment is four. You got upsold. Well, I got upsold because I, I was already working at AOL. I really loved network technology. And the job I signed up for was a network engineer. So, you know, go to boot camp, get sort of specialized training, and ended up in Korea for two years. Basically, my nickname was Cisco Kid because I was 19. And they sort of said, hey, you're it. And so every router switch firewall in the peninsula of Korea from a military perspective, I touched in some way, form or fashion. So there's about 50,000 troops, contractors, and civilians. So I had a blast. So that was kind of my first 
entrepreneurial endeavor per se, because literally as a 19 year old kid, I'm going to 60 year old colonels in the army saying, here's the problem. I have a solution. You have a budget constraint. You have a communications constraint. So that really whet my appetite for what happened later in my life. But that was probably the first touch point I had where I had sort of really constrained resources because they didn't want to give me any money. I had no one. It was just me. And my job literally was sort of undefined white space, but they knew they had a problem because up until I was there, each base had sort of a dial up over satellite to connect back to the States. And they said, well, this is prohibitively expensive. The Korean populace was light years ahead of what we were doing. So, uh, so yeah, that uh, flash forward, um, uh, moved back to the States, uh, was in a special forces unit from 2000 to 2004. Politics aside, I knew going in, I wanted to get out. The Afghanistan conflicts certainly helped strengthen my my thoughts of getting out. I, I you know I served with some amazing people. I had a great time. I have nothing bad to say. It just wasn't you know I, I have friends who are now on their thirteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth deployment, and I respect the hell out of them for doing that. It just wasn't something I saw as sort of a lifelong experience. So yeah. Um, that that was certainly, you know, very MacGyverish. Where we had a, a satellite dish that was, I think, like a three meter satellite dish, so about ten feet, and 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 it took a rocket. And so that afternoon we had aluminum foil and um, some like duct tape, and we're sort of, you know, you do what you do. And, and so again, it's 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 innovative, it's resourceful, it's thinking outside the box from a very different type of problem. But at the end of the day, like, you know, there's all those cliche phrases like failure is not an option, but literally there are sort of lives in the balance where we were and not being able to communicate was just not acceptable. And, and so that stuck with me, I think, throughout the sort of journey. Got out of the military in 2004. The, the low hanging fruit, I think, is being a government consultant where it's sort of high pay, low value, if I can speak cynically of the job. No, it's, it's totally true. So, so, yeah, I did that for a while, grew tired of it quickly because while the pay was great, I knew I wanted to get back to the stuff I was doing in the military, which was really sort of white space where, you know, both in Korea as a, as a network guy and then stateside in the special forces capacity, really sort of thinking outside the box and just sort of figuring out here's a, a sort of problem set. What's my thesis on how we can solve it? And so went back to Carnegie Mellon for an MBA, going there knowing I, I had a sort of defined thesis around the world is highly inefficient. As you look at any industry and efficiency gains can be an autonomous process or robotic process or, you know, whether it's a people, people that need to be higher skilled, a process that needs to be improved or a technology that can unlock an innovation. That was sort of my high level thesis. And so I ended up founding a company while I was there and moved to New York post school, ran that for, I guess, depending on when we technically started 2012 to 2016. And so that was a logistics platform connecting trucking companies and shipping companies. So customers like Blue Apron would always be looking for more capacity. They want access to sort of faster moving fleets because for them, the name of the game is get food to the customer as fast as possible so that you have as much time to, to consume it with 
there's little risk of, of failure. So I had a blast doing that, learned a ton. While I was doing that, I started making the smaller sized angel deals because, you know, within the community, we're very friendly. We go to meetups, we meet people. And usually the conversation starts, how can I be helpful? You know, do you need introduction to coders? Do you need customer introductions? Do you need capital introductions? Um, I call them the three C's. And, uh, and so, you know, depending on stage, stage and state, maybe I have more capacity to help you find a customer than I have financial resources or vice versa, but always trying to figure out, you know, I want to be in the conversation. I want people to know who I am and, and I want to be helpful, not just a sort of, you know, talking head. So was this before or after Grand Central Tech? Yeah, um, this was way before. So yeah, so that, so as I, you know, uh, as, as Transmission was acquired sort of late 2016, I had already done a number of angel deals and was figuring out next steps. And so a couple of friends had come to me as, as deals got more and more interesting, they'd come to me and say, Hey, we want to sort of either syndicate a deal with you. We want to put money in. Um, so as the economic conditions changed, I thought, all right, if you're doing an angel deal, it's, it's, well, one, it's, it's your money. And two, based on your comfort level, you invest according to your conviction. Obviously, when it's other people's money, you have to have a much more structured discipline around what you're doing. And so I sort of decided, hey, you know, I'm not going to work for free investing other people's money. So let's sort of codify this as a fund. Around that same time, so I went through an accelerator with my previous company, Transmission, called ERA. And there, at the time, the operations director there was a woman named Galena Osgur. She moved to Grand Central Tech. She knew that I was sort of figuring things out. And so she reached out and said, hey, we'd love to have you be part of the Grand Central Tech family. And so technically, there's four components to Grand Central Tech. Um, the component that I'm helpful for is called the Urban Tech Hub. So their whole mission is to accelerate, to influence, to help urban tech companies. So the way they define urban tech is really anything besides sort of fintech and ad tech, anything that helps an urban citizen. So energy, there's some IoT stuff in there, mobility stuff in there, um, some computer vision type stuff. And so, yeah, I, I spend one day a week in there helping anything from sort of advice on pitch decks, fundraising connections. It's, 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 I, I love it because you get to see a whole different side of things. Because deal flow is one thing, but oftentimes because I am a, a rather thesis-driven investor, I won't see things that are so far off topic. Whereas at Grand Central, some of the things, because I know I, it's, it's not in my wheelhouse, I can be a lot more sort of blunt, if you will, because you know, I don't have a strong position on it. I can just look at the material presented and give very sort of open feedback. So yeah, that, that's... I guess up to now, um, so the fund, fund one was sort of a, a micro VC fund with the main purpose showing conviction around thesis, being able to sort of deploy capital into interesting deals. And yeah, so I've made eight official investments. And then the last two I've committed and just waiting on sort of the legal structures. So what is your thesis? Sure. So thesis is really, and, and I sort of hit on it a minute ago, talking about sort of 
underutilized capacity in the okay. world. But but going deeper, it's really as new technology hits older industry, there's this wealth of opportunity. So for example, one of the investments that I have yet to transfer money into, but have been helping for a while, I'd call them sort of money ball for trucking. So they have a machine learning type product focused on the risk around 18 wheel freight trucking, long haul trucking. So usually when you hear about an accident involving an 18 wheel truck, they talk about number of fatalities. They don't talk about people walking away. So it's, it's a risky industry. It's, it's rather high profile. And when there is a high profile accident, the companies involved pay a lot of money in claims. So anything that can reduce the financial risk and certainly the loss of life risk is a large opportunity. And so this particular company, they have about a 25-year proprietary data set that they've been able to acquire and now have been able to train and model off of with the idea that um, you know drivers are legally allowed to drive X number of miles per day, per hour, per week, uh, per day, per week. And so they can do start start doing sort of if then that type nuance analysis. If Bob has driven over 40 hours and three inches of rain, 58% higher probability of accident. How can we sort of mitigate against this risk? And so they they would be sort of an, a, a typical thesis investment. And let's go ahead. But autonomous. So I, I imagine the reason you possibly haven't pulled the trigger is the question is how long will people be driving trucks? Well, I think even after autonomous comes around, the the risk profile... So until there are zero vehicles driven by humans, I think it actually becomes more of a valuable product when we're in sort of a mixed mode, if you will, because they now need to predict the behavior of the, they call them four-wheelers, so cars. Mm-hmm. Um, as cars interact with autonomous trucks and autonomous cars interact with human-driven trucks, in that mixed mode capacity, what is the risk profile that's acceptable? How do you sort of drive that down? So if there are fixed track, only autonomous driven roads, then maybe you might. But I, I think that, so believe me, I am a, a as futurist as they come. Um, there's a great, uh, uh, I don't know, TED talk type talk I read, uh, Tony Sebus, Sebus from Stanford. Check it out. I'll plug it. It's, uh, it's it, just look them up. And it was basically like an hour long chat on this sort of disruptive innovation in clean tech and uh, transportation. And a lot of his thoughts on it, I, I completely agree with. And he, in a nutshell, he says the timeline's a lot faster than most people believe. He thinks it's around 2022, where we sort of have this huge push. One, I don't think that we go flash the bang from, you know, 100 million cars to zero. Two, I think that like I just stated, there's actually more risk in a mixed mode than there is in all of either because it's the unpredictability. These are computer-driven vehicles that have to be programmed chaos. They have to be programmed unpredicted behavior. Yeah, New, um, York, New York drivers are more of dicks than Georgia drivers, et cetera. <laughs> so you have to know how close people are following and who's texting. Absolutely. 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 That makes sense. Right. And, and I think that I haven't invested in any, but I think there are a couple technologies that are sort of if you sort of say crawl, walk, run as a sort of evolutionary stage of how we get there, 
There's a company called Peloton that's in the West Coast, and they do platoon driving of trucks where basically they get, I don't want to say maybe, I, I, I don't know, it's feet apart, very close apart. And so the lead vehicle sort of pushes all the air out of the way, and then all these other vehicles sort of streamline. The same way you'd see in like a Tour de France type Peloton. But it's this sort of autonomous light because if you're on a highway and you know you're driving at highway speed, it works. I don't believe their technology would work block to block in Manhattan. That's not really the edge case that they're the, the use case they're going for. But that's available now. They're doing that today. And but you know, so so yeah, the the the, the macro topic is really, and then I have uh, a couple zero waste economy. Job uh, companies that are similarly looking at newer technologies and how they sort of disrupt that space. I have a transportation company called Transit Screen, and they they basically what they started out doing and what they're evolving into. Again, utilization. I think I read the other day cars are used four percent of the time. So. But everybody likes to drive because they like to sort of feel that sort of autonomous, you know, I'm in charge. But if you live in an urban area like New York, like D.C., like Boston, there are a lot of options that you have at your disposal to get from A to B. What are the best options and how does that inform whether where you rent, where you live, where you commute to? Meaning if I'm in a uh, rental building in um, New York City, um, on in the ground floor, uh, transit screen put in these kiosks where it'll show next arriving bus, next arriving train, next arriving whatever. So that was their initial product where it sort of shows the transportation ecosystem that is available to you based on your location. Now, they, uh, yesterday, I don't know if you know, but yesterday was a World Car Free Day. <laughs> oh, yeah? Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and so uh, they, they launched a new product called Mobility Score. So a couple of years ago, there was a company that came out with WalkScore. And that was, that was, I think, a good first step for what Mobility Score is. It was only focused on walking, whereas Mobility Score, they've gotten a lot of great interest now. It's been released literally for a day, but they've gotten a lot of great interest from the real estate community. You know, all else being equal, I'm a real estate developer. I want to build a new 40-story tower. I want, I know that for all my people, they want, you know, real estate to be, uh, or sorry, mobility to be a big deal. So if I put a building here, my mobility score, I look at ride sharing, bus sharing, maybe there's a ferry, maybe there's all these other different modes. So my overall mobility score is 99. Boom, off the charts. And, and so as they build sort of an, as they API-ify it and go that route, then sort of the higher level thinking is, okay, if my cost per square foot, you know, figuring out your, your sort of, what, what's the premium I'm willing to pay for the land relative to the increased mobility score that I get and how does that relate into the overall product? So, so again, using this sort of glut of data, figuring out what does that mean for the world of transportation? So those are the sort of things that excite me. You could probably plug that into a Zillow as well. So what's, what's the New York City scene like for startups? I've, I've heard a lot. It seems, to be, it seems to be booming along, but let's get it from the insider, someone who's walking the streets. Yeah. Um, and I guess I'm a little different because I've been on both sides of the coin in New York. So, if, you know, if I'm, if I'm put on, putting on my startup hat, I think it's, it's a great ecosystem. I think there are some natural... Um, so I don't... 
going back a step, I don't really do any sort of fintech or ad tech um, investing, which is probably the two largest areas in New York. So maybe I'm a little oddball in that regard. But yeah, the, the ecosystem here, if you're anywhere on the map, as far as a financial services startup, a advertising or marketing startup, really New York's where you need to be. But then in Brooklyn specifically, there are some great spaces and great companies doing very hardware-focused companies. So Bree Pettis founded MakerBot, for example, here in Brooklyn. Kickstarter and Etsy are here. And there are a lot of lesser known, but, but very successful. There are a lot of urban farming, vertical farming um, startups that have sprung out of Brooklyn. Because again, I think, again, I, I'm going to keep plugging sort of this utilization thing. Brooklyn is larger than Manhattan by land, but you'll see these sort of bombed out warehouses and lesser utilized spaces. Not as many as you used to because, you know, Brooklyn's population is booming, but there is more desire to make efficient these, these areas. So you'll see these accelerators that'll pop up, these sort of WeWork spaces that pop up. So I, I definitely think there's a buzz about the city where even within the city, there have now become sort of corridors of innovation where Union Square Ventures certainly was one of the preeminent earlier on seed stage and, and early stage investors. So now all around Union Square in New York, there are just so many sort of startups. It's moved north into Flatiron. Like I said, Brooklyn and Dumbo and Navy Yard has a hub. So, so it's, it's fun to see it sort of spread where maybe five or six years ago, it was in this tiny little corridor. Now there are literally startups in the Bronx. There's startups in Queens. There's startups in Jersey. I think Blue Aprons in, uh, I think their, their hub is in Jersey City. Or maybe that's their, their logistics hub. Um, so yeah, it's, it's sort of starting to spread where, again, if you need, for a tech startup, you sort of need code, capital, and customers to survive, thrive, and grow. I think early on, it was capital where there's plenty of money in New York, but there wasn't a sort of a practice, practice of investment for early stage. That's certainly evolved and grown exponentially. And then the issue, I think, was code. So if you sort of think that like Carnegie Mellon, Stanford, MIT are the preeminent CS engineering schools, Stanford kids, they got the West Coast, Boston. Uh, Carnegie Mellon, I think, has really sort of traveled well into New York as well as, you know, there are plenty of people that come to New York. But I think as people believed in the idea of New York being a great fit, there was, and Cornell Tech just built a campus in New York. So as, as these preeminent great technologists come to New York, that really sort of rises, raises the level of, of sort of quality. And then certainly the lastly is customers. The, you know, the Fortune 500's always been here. There have always been a lot of great companies. So that to me makes, if I'm plugging New York, that makes New York hella more attractive than like San Jose, California, where you got Cisco and a couple others. But I mean, you know, if I'm, if I'm a B2B SaaS company that needs to sell to anybody, well, I can just sort of walk down the street in New York and just bang on doors. You see the strengths distributed based off of what the cities are great at. So mm -hmm. East Coast, West Coast, they both have their thing. New York is fashion. It's ads. Mm -hmm. It's money. Mm -hmm. Then you see everything else happening out in the West Coast. And they, I mean, consumer tech, most 
you should probably be in the West Coast if you're doing that. Let's say you're a founder in the middle of nowhere America. Where are mm-hmm. you where are you going? Let's say you just got some angel money, you're moving to a city to go big. Where are you going? Well, right. Yeah. So I guess I guess I'll I'll say there are some other hubs that are interesting. So it would really depend on what you're doing. I think um, there are a couple use cases where neither New York and SF probably make the most sense. And I'll go ahead and plug Pittsburgh. So the National Robotics and Engineering Center is in Pittsburgh. If I'm doing anything with sort of large-scale autonomous vehicles and or robotics, I would argue Pittsburgh has more capacity to be world-class. And, you know, you can certainly move from Pittsburgh to New York to USF. Um, there have been a ton of companies. <laughs> there have been several iterations of Google's autonomous vehicle, or I'm sorry, of Carnegie Mellon's autonomous vehicle lab. I think version one was acquired by Google. Version two was acquired. By, I mean, literally, these are like world-class uh, roboticists and autonomous vehicle researchers. So, you know, they keep getting swooped up. And now Uber said, hey, screw this. We're just going to build a center in Pittsburgh so that they can be co-located. So yeah, if I'm in Bozeman, Montana, and I'm building a uh, Tinder for cats, then absolutely SF is where I need to end up because I'm not investing in Tinder for cats. <laughs> um, but 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 on the flip side, if I'm building like a if I'm building a a fintech product that is sort of mass market product that's going to be used by big banks, then probably New York is the best for me. There are London. Certain, London be another great spot. There are there are plenty of examples of companies that have sort of stuck with it and done fine. I heard someone the other day use the term reg tech as in regulated regulation tech. Certainly, DC is the the sort of mother load of governmental oversight. So if I was you know knowing who your customer is. And then maybe looking three steps beyond saying, here's my customer today. Are they always going to be my customer? Am I going to grow beyond them in 18 months, 36 months, 48 months? So if I say my customer is always going to be, you know, high fashion. Okay, great. Maybe it's Paris, London, Milan, New York, uh, depending on where I start, may, might just decide where I end up. But again, customer is cool, but how much capital am I going to need to raise? Is it going to be easy or hard? You know, I don't know what Milan's startup looks like. So certainly no, they've got go the there. fashion scene. Right, right, right. Certainly they've got the fashion scene. I don't know anything about their sort of uh, uh, entrepreneurial ecosystem. But yeah, I, I, there are some great hubs in Europe. By my work with Grand Central Tech, I know that, for example, uh, what's it called? Uh, Barcelona has the, um, the World Congress for Smart Cities, Smart Cities World Congress. And so they have sort of put themselves on the map as being this IoT and smart cities uh, hub. So, so I guess the short answer to the question is, if you're in a broad-based category of consumer-facing tech, maybe the West Coast makes more sense. If you're in a broad-based category of fashion, advertising, and finance, then New York makes sense. There are other cities that make sense if you're in sort of a a very esoteric industry. But I can also say, you know, I don't invest in the three things I just said, and I'm doing just fine in New York. There are just, you know, you know I think one, I get, to see, I get to see a lot of people. If I was doing ad tech 
as an early stage investor, all of the preeminent deals are probably going to three to five VCs that are very well known and have very established track records. So one, my deal flow is very asymmetric. I get to see things that maybe aren't on, on top of mind. Um, that doesn't mean that they're economically less viable. And I'd argue most of them are more viable because I would say in that sort of real business, they're not sort of pushing money from a pile over here to a pile over there, but they're sort of delivering a lot of high value returns to their customers. And I get to sort of swoop in when others aren't interested. So, so yeah, if you're, if you're building a B2B business, come talk to me. <laughs> Jason Cahill, guys. I want to jump into the lightning round. How's that sound? Sure. First question. What's the first company you ever invested in? Um, Dash. What do they do? They, in a nutshell, would be considered Fitbit for cars. They are a hardware-software combination of a device that plugs into your car, and they help drivers become more informed about the behavior patterns while they drive. Interesting. It sounds very cool and slightly dangerous in case I look down. Well, no, no, no. Sorry. You don't do it while you're driving. It takes all these data points from the what's called onboard computer while you're driving. And then the companion app after you're done driving, certainly not while you're, it'll show things like too many lane changes, acceleration, braking, and it gives you a score. And so they have productized it. Uh, in fact, in Europe, depending on what country you're in, you can get a discount on your insurance if you partner with the right vendors based on your sort of driving patterns. Interesting. I had a friend who built something similar, but you saw it real time. So it's always real dangerous while we were monitoring everything <laughs> in the car. What, do you, what right. are you excited about today, Jason? What am I excited about? I think there are um, two topics I'm excited about. Zero waste economy. And in essence, that means uh, if and, and it's there are a lot of industries that fall under that. But if we said food waste, right, converting food waste into sellable products, converting trash into sellable products, being we, we as kids grew up with the whole reduce, reuse, recycle. I think um, reuse is really where I get a lot of excitement because I think recycling is not financially viable in most cases. And it's naive to think that every human ever throws trash into a receptacle. So as we sort of gain access to waste streams, how do we monetize those? And then the second, second topic is sort of clean and green energy. I think, so a company, I'm not going to name them because I didn't get to invest in them, but I, I, I think they're onto something big. I think there are a lot of alternative energy companies that are just really going to 10x explode in the next, you know, six to 18 months. And since you, since you uh, mentioned watching uh, Silicon Valley, the way they have this sort of distributed grid I'm looking at sort of microgrid and distributed grid technologies for energy. I think we are a lot closer than people realize to having sort of communal energy where you, me, and 12 of our neighbors rooftop solar, maybe we got geothermal, maybe we got a wind farm at the end of a block. We don't need big utility grid energy that's about as inefficient as any industry out there. So that's something that really excites me. Yeah, it's really interesting. I know a cool company, the Sun Exchange. It's essentially a marketplace for solar. It, they're, uh, they're focused on what more or less systematizing it so you can have small-scale solar, essentially, mm -hmm. when you're off-grid. What's the biggest company you've missed? Who's your uh, anti-investment <laughs> list? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so the, funny, uh, the, the biggest company that I've missed... So as an angel, I missed... and Man, I don't remember their name. 
they're 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 off the thesis that I've been talking about. They they do um, sort of young adult fiction. Man, I can't remember the name, but they've they've uh, gone on to really really sort of kick ass and um, and and they've done they've done really well. That was one where that was uh, about three years ago. It was on Angel List. AngelList has changed their, their platform a number of times. Early days, it would show you sort of what the allocation was and what was left. So, you know, it sort of, if I remember correctly, it was something like the allocation was 500K and 110 had currently been invested. So it was on a Friday and I thought, eh, I'll get back to this on Monday because it seemed interesting. Came back on Monday and it said, you know, 680,000 of 500,000. So I thought, well, yeah, I kind of missed that one. But but as McCune, I think the best deal we missed is, uh, again, uh, I'm not going to name them because I'm still mad at them. <laughs> now, if you name yeah. them, now you have a better chance of getting into the next round because you're no, giving no, no. some I, extra publicity. I actually, I actually think they're a great company. Um, in, in essence, they're sort of uh, solar city for geothermal. So the way SolarCity sort of democratized and unlocked solar for the masses, that's their approach for uh, geothermal, where they have a very sort of purpose-built, much smaller. So the, the big dig, the, the big complaint with geothermal was it's really expensive and it destroys your yard and it's just this big system. So they have shrunk the size of the drill hole. They have shrunk the size of the space needed to do it. And because of these things, and they can do it much faster, it's about a third, uh, third to half the cost. So in essense, you know, for, you know, eighteen dollars to $24,000, you amortize that over the life, life of your house and you now know, no longer have an energy bill ever. Um, Interesting. Right. So again, tying back to my earlier comments about sort of microgrid financing, there are ways you can use their technology where maybe I don't even need it in my basement. Maybe there's sort of within my HOA, there's a park. Well, if 500 feet below the park, there are 35 different holes emitting, you know, gas. It doesn't, it doesn't disrupt anybody's yard. It's just as energy efficient. And so my HOA fee that might be, you know, 500 bucks because we have a community pool, now we get paid every month from the community because we get a surplus of energy. That's the kind of thing that excites me. So Dandelion, there you go. Dandelion is uh, the company I am sad most about missing. And once you have that with real large-scale crypto, you don't really need much government. So what's the next field that'll dominate exits and IPOs in the next 10 years? Yeah. So, so hopefully everything I'm in, right? Um, <laughs> um, no, I think, I think and if, after, we, after we get off this call, if you've, if you've got an hour to kill, watch Tony Sebus's sort of take on the innovation cycle for clean tech and energy. Because I think a lot of the things he talks about are really where I think we're going. Tony C-E-B-A-S, Stanford professor, YouTube, look it up. It's, it's very wonky. So if you're a um, uh, Freakonomics type person that can really get deep in data, that's kind of where this talk is. But I, I truly believe that at the sort of convergence of transportation, of energy, of ag tech, as, as we move forward in the 21st century, like autonomous vehicles, as those come online, Initially, we now move from a petroleum-based grid to an electrical-based grid. Do we really want more capacity of coal-fired power plants? Because remember, we got a lot of cars on the road. Initially, if we're just doing one-for-one swaps between single-owner 
a single occupant vehicle gas, single occupant vehicle electric, because I think we'll be in this weird space for a couple years as autonomous vehicles sort of take over. But until, until they do, we need a really large increase in capacity of energy. And so as we do, are we, are we going to be content sort of throwing more coal-fired power plants and more petroleum, or are we going to double down on electricity? And in the talk, um, it talks about sort of cost convergence. So right now today, utility scale um, solar in Dubai is 2.28 cents, which is the equivalent of $10 a barrel of oil. So forget about politics, forget about where you sort of fit on the spectrum of sort of energy tolerance, uh, whether you like one or the other. It's a pure economic condition where if we get to $10 a barrel oil, you know, the the scrap metal from the pump jacks is more valuable than the oil underneath. And so I think in the five to 10 year range, all of the, the energy, all of the, you know, along those same lines is, is really agriculture. How do we sort of get more with less land? Vertical farming, roboticized farming. How do we sort of, you look at yield curves on, um, for every acre of crop that's planted, how much food is actually getting pulled out. Um, we didn't really talk about that too much, but the same sort of utilization and optimization that I had mentioned in energy, the same thing to do with agriculture. Not just optimization, but delivery optimization. So it actually gets there without spoiling. Absolutely. End to end. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I talked to a company yesterday, actually, where that's kind of their value prop is greatly extending the shelf life by putting a um, putting a bit of organic and inorganic inorganic heat yell at me uh, a bit of organic chemistry in these little packets that go along in say you have like a box of strawberries melons avocados and yeah they've been really successful I think they've been at it for about two years you're right like not simply increasing the yield if you can't increase the viability of product all the way to the consumer. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just more waste. And if we pull off that solar, then young guys like you won't get free trips to Afghanistan. <laughs> so um, who's your big, who was your biggest role model in business growing up? Um, yeah. This is going to sound weird. So, so growing up, I guess, um, I was a huge Steve Case fan. That's not weird. But then my sort of adult role model, it was actually my uh, battalion commander when I was in Afghanistan. Because I think he, he certainly was an atypical, um, he, 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 the way he conducted himself, the way every conversation would start with, you know, how can I help you? How you, you seem down, talk to me, what's going on? Like so much empathy. And we probably don't think of military leaders as being necessarily empathetic, but you know, uh, I got out of the military in 2004. I went to his ceremony where he he went on to become a general. He was, you know, a really fast-tracking, fast-moving guy. I hadn't seen him at that point in six years. There were 500 people at the ceremony. But, you know, as I approach, he gives me a big bear hug, says, how are you doing, Jason? That's the kind of, you know, role model. That's the kind of man I aspire to be where, irrespective of industry, business is about relationships. Business is about people. And when you treat people well, it always comes around tenfold. I and think it, that was my takeaway. And that makes you a great leader as well. Give me one productivity hack that you like. Yeah, I'll, I'll plug a brand, Streak. I, I love Streak. It's a, a Gmail plugin. 
Um, I think we all get buried down in emails. I love the fact that I can snooze things for later. So if somebody says, hey, let's touch base in two weeks, I don't need to un market is unread. And then I just have this message that I'm nervous about touching. Um, I just snooze it and say, you know, wake me back up in two hours or two weeks. That's, that's definitely sort of, uh, I, I like being a uh, inbox zero guy so that I can leave my office going, I've done everything I need to do. And I don't feel edgy when I go home. The problem is when you have those times where you get a billion emails and suddenly you don't get back to them all. And then your inbox like 5,000. I like, I like HubSpot. I use that for the mm-hmm. I, I CRM, all of our awesome investors, VCs, angels that are coming on the podcast. And then, Hey, can, how about we do this in three months? Okay. Send later in three months, just following. Right. But right. Yeah. yeah. I've looked at both. I think they have a lot of similar things. And then and one of the other features I, I guess I like about streak is sort of a, if you think of a sales funnel or a investment funnel, it's being really similar, right? If I listen, if I get a hundred pitches, I'm certainly not investing in a hundred companies. So figuring out how you can sort of stage gate, go through that. So I also use it on my active companies. So, you know, if I have 10 active companies and they have varying levels of sort of investor update capacity and or willpower, um, I can kind of see when my last touch point was. And if I'm like, oh, it's been a while since I've talked to, you know, John, then, okay, I need to sort of circle the wagon and figure things out. So, so yeah, I think that's a good hack where it's kept me honest, where it, it works both ways, where if I'm supposed to give feedback or make a connection, then I can kind of keep myself honest the same way. You can decompartmentalize it. You don't have to remember to do it. And that's, that's what kills you is when you have to remember everything. Yeah, yeah. Decompartmentalize. My, my wife would attest to the fact I'm probably a bit OCD where, you know, I have little buckets and bins for everything, both professionally and personally. So I like to keep sort of everything organized on a shelf. It helps. It helps. Jason, I want to be respectful for, of your time. I know you're incredibly busy. You've got quite a bit going on. Now, I want you to just break down one more time. Give me a pitch. New York City. If I'm a startup and I need to go somewhere, why do I go to New York? Sure. Code, capital, and customers. Capital is like nowhere else on earth. I mean, Wall Street has been the mother of all economic opportunity for a couple hundred years. As the investor community has matured 10x since earlier days, you're going to find just as robust an early stage investment environment here as you would anywhere else. Customers. There are, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but there are many, many Fortune 500 companies and much smaller companies, Fortune 5000, uh, Russell 5000 companies headquartered and with large operations in the greater New York City area. Lastly is cap, is, is, uh, code. Like I, I'll plug my Carnegie Mellon. We've got a great pipeline between Pittsburgh and New York where we send thought leaders back and forth. Cornell Tech just built a great campus on Roosevelt Island in New York. And, you know, there's this thriving buzz about New York where seven, eight, nine years ago, I remember going out to SF and seeing that where you'd be at a coffee shop and see people. Now, literally, if I'm at a Starbucks and there's just laptop madness, um, these aren't bankers working for Morgan Stanley. These are all startup people that are trying to figure out how do they get the next step to where they need to be. So in a nutshell, code, capital, customers all exist bigly. Can I say that? That's, bigly that's nice is to- if you make up a word and it's awesome, we can totally use it. And bigly, that, that's a good bigly is an awesome word. word. Yeah, yeah. 
Let's hear it for New York, guys. Let's hear it for Jason. Thanks for coming on today, Jason. Where's the best place for people can reach out to you? Only pitch him if you fit his thesis or if for some reason you want to help him. Where's the best place? Yeah, invest at McCune.vc. And I try and respond. You know, um, I, I have a, a ethos. I'm probably going to screw myself by admitting this. Oh, no, you respond um, to everything. And here come the inbound. <laughs> I, I usually will respond like I always respond because I've been on the same side. I'm not saying I'm going to respond other than saying no thanks, not interested. But I try and respond to everything because I need to be respectful. I've been on the other side of the coin. And I think the worst is when you don't get a yes or a no, you're sort of stuck in the middle. So I, you know, I will be brutally honest and say, this is a product, not a business. This is not a good idea. This is unfundable. So, you know, you need to have a little bit of founder thick skin, but certainly send something to invest at McCune.vc and, you know, more than happy to take a look and give thoughts. We'll throw links to all that in the show notes. If I'm really ambitious, we'll put the intro to the New York theme song on, on this. We'll see. But um, thanks for coming on today, Jason. It's been fun. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot. Awesome. And thanks for tuning in, guys. If this has been helpful, go to iTunes, leave a review. The syndicate.vc slash iTunes. That's how we get in front of more investors, VCs. That's how we get awesome guys like Jason on. That's how we have winners and we can really dedicate resources to making this happen. If you're not part of the syndicate yet, the syndicate.vc slash join any accredited investors that want to get in on the deals we're syndicating, go get in on the action. But now it's time to get back to work. So coffee time. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit the syndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to the syndicate.vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.